You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 20. Joshua 20. Like the Israelites of old who are marching through the promised land, so we as God's people today are marching through God's word, particularly through the, God, the word of Joshua, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to God's people, preserved for generation upon generation that even today we would stand here today and listen to these words and realize that they are indeed written by men but led by the Holy Spirit to be captured for us that we would listen and learn to God's word this morning as it has been throughout the years and so it continues to be even around the world today. As we come to this text, I'm reminded even in reflecting upon it as we'll see in the next two chapters this morning, the significance of the sacredness of life. Life is indeed sacred. We understand this. We feel the pain of both the beginning and the end of it. I say the beginning because how many, perhaps even in this very room, have felt the tears run down their cheeks when they have both received the news of a pregnancy and then to feel the pain of the loss of that pregnancy and miscarriage or stillborn or otherwise. And at the end of life, when the rest of us as surviving relatives feel pulled out of our hands, the death of a mother or a father, a brother, a sister, perhaps even in the tragedy of a fallen world, the death of a very child of our own. We feel that the world is not like how it's supposed to be. Even as we look at news events and we see what's happening tragically in places of faraway countries that we do not occupy, but we nevertheless hear about places like Ukraine and places like Israel and what's happening in these places where so much death is taking place and we are just overwhelmed by it, almost preferring to just go back to some other YouTube video of lighter matters. The reality is, is this is the aftermath. The aftermath of what God said in Genesis, Adam, listen very carefully to me. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam and his wife Eve, being seduced by the serpent, by the evil one, did not believe the word of God, and therefore, in disobeying God, brought upon the consequence that we still live with today. Death is around us, And unless the Lord returns before then, awaits all of us. God in his wisdom, as he has done in a variety of ways for society, has given clarity in his word, what do we do with it? Especially in light of when it comes unexpectedly. And that brings us to our text this morning in Joshua chapter 20. I did not have the opportunity to be with you last week. Pastor Alpino, our dear brother from Palm Vista Church, faithfully preach God's word from Hebrews, but we return back to where we left off two weeks ago. Having looked at Joshua chapters 13 through 19 in one single setting, you're like, did you really pull that off for those who weren't here? We did. Well, this morning we slow it down a bit and we only cover two chapters this morning. 
And in these chapters, I just mind you, remind you of the significance of where we are in the placement in this historical marker here. You have the idea that now that the war has seemingly almost come to an end, what shall happen with all the land? Where should it go? And that has been recorded in the previous chapters. But then we get to chapter 20. We're taking notes this morning. Chapter 20, which is really just nine verses, we learn about people. We're learning about people in chapter 20. Follow along in your Bibles, if you would, as I read to you. At least the first six verses says the following. Then the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. And they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of the blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is a, who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. And then the following verses, seven through eight, speaks about these different cities that they're designated for the people. And at the very end, it says this in verse nine, anyone who killed the person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. All right. I recognize for probably almost everyone in this room, this context seems strange to you, at least by today's modern mind, these sensibilities in the world you and I are living in. So let me, if I can, help set the scene. All the way back in the second book of the Bible, Exodus 21, one of the first commands that God gave after giving the Ten Commandments was the future establishment of cities of refuge. These cities provided a place of safety for unintentional manslayers. The fact that these cities are discussed in four books of the Old Testament, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and even here now in Joshua, speaks to the significance of how important they were. Now, why are they important? Because you have to understand, back in that time, here's how life normally was lived amongst all of these tribes, even outside of the Israelites. In the ancient world, blood revenge was widely practiced. The moment a person was killed, his nearest relative took responsibility for killing the person who killed their relative. This ancient rite of vendetta was often handed down even from one generation to another. So even if it wasn't accomplished by your parents, your parents would commission you to do it in their absence as perhaps they were passing away. The need in ancient Israel for the refuge of these special cities was very evident. And you can see here in the text, the particular context is the repeating use of the phrase manslayer. You see that in verse 3, the manslayer who strikes any person without intent. The manslayer in verse 5. Again, the manslayer in verse 6 may return to his own town. 
this is describing something that's important here, and I want to make sure we understand this because there's some lessons to learn just in chapter 20. Lesson number one, motives matter. Motives matter. We see this in verse three, a clear, or verses one to three, a clear distinction is made between premeditated murder and accidental manslaughter. In the case of murder, the nearest kinsman became the avenger of blood, killing the guilty party. But if a person killed another person accidentally, he was provided a place of asylum, of refuge, into one of these six cities. And he was expected to get there as quickly as possible. He couldn't simply just claim it. He had to be present in it. You can even sort of see that, how significant it is, how he must flee there, going there. It says in verse 4, flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place. He shall remain with them. And then notice what it says there in verse 5. He should not give up the manslayer in his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. This means it was an accident, and nothing historically would question whether it really was an accident. But God recognizes the reality of what happens here. Accidents take place. We see this even on our own highways. We see this in our own places of employment. We see this in our own neighborhoods. There is a tragic death. Perhaps some of you even know it in your own family where people died tragically, unexpectedly because of the actions of another that were not intended. At their hand, but not in their heart. It's a distinction of motive. It's apparent that God wishes to impress on Israel the sanctity, if you will, here the reality of this responsibility. According to Jewish tradition, the roads leading to these cities were kept in excellent condition and the crossroads were well marked with signposts reading refuge, refuge. The second we can understand from this text is that life is sacred. Life is sacred. I want to make sure that you and I don't miss together two lives being considered here. Life is sacred, and the two lives I'm referring to are not only the one who's the manslayer, explicitly referenced three different times, but even the one who has died. Is there mercy in that the person's life is spared? Yes. But is there justice in that there nevertheless are consequences for what they have done? Yes. God's word is showing the dignity of both lives and the reality of how they are recognized in the community. God's word is recognizing the grief and the inevitable loss that would come from the person who has lost their life. And the consequence of that, regardless of motive, that there would be consequences. Yet, even though there's justice as to what would come for that person, there was still mercy in what would not come for that person. You notice how long this was to take place. It says the significance of this. He shall remain in the city, verse 6, until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who was high priest at the time. 
The people of Israel had one high priest to represent them in the Holy of Holies. He would do so in different ways at different times in the year. He only lived for so long, and upon him dying, then another high priest would be selected to represent them. And that death of his high priest, you could say, is sort of an Old Testament statute of limitations, if you will. Upon his death, a person was released from the consequences of their actions and allowed to go back to their hometown with the promise that they would be kept safe. And if anybody acted otherwise, then they, premeditatedly having killed that person, they would be responsible, and they would ironically be killed. It's significant to see here this motives matter, that life is sacred, but then also third, consequences correspond to action. These consequences correspond to action recognize if acquitted of a premeditated murder, this person would live in the city of refuge until the high priest died, after which he could return to his home, like I said, and he would do this because it really was a loss and he needed to recognize that. Friends, for those of you who are Christians, maybe you already kind of feel the pull of this text into the New Testament in our hearts, even seeing some of the connections. Israel's benefit of sanctuary, these sanctuary cities where they could run if they had done something wrong and find refuge, reminds us even of Psalm 46 verse 1, which says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. But not just a generic, hey, you've got hard days and difficult ways, turn to God, certainly true. But even more specifically, we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the reality between us and the people in this text. We mean to do what we've done. We are guilty and deserving of ultimate punishment. Yet God in his mercy, the very song we sung earlier before the announcements, has extended mercy to us, not because we have otherwise in a technicality gotten off, but because he in exchange for us offered his son to receive our punishment. His death for our life. This takes us now to Joshua 21. We move from learning about people to now learning about priests. There's a transition here, and the reason there's a transition that connects is because the people we're about to learn about are actually related to the areas that we just talked about. I'll explain them in more detail. Look with me at Joshua 21. Then the heads of the father's houses of the Levites came to Eleazar, the priest, and to Joshua, the son of Nun, and to the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses, that we be given cities to dwell in, along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So, by command of the Lord of the people of Israel, gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. In verses 4 down through verses 41, you see the detail of that where those different places are as they're detailed out. What you have to understand when we talk about learning about priests here is a significant act of distribution is now described. 
generically, previously in chapters 13 to 19, all of the 12 tribes of Israel's land is being talked about, but here's one group that was seemingly left out, the Levites. The reading of the will, if you will, no pun intended, missed that one sibling, Levi, but he knew this was coming. He was told he would not get any land, but there's something specifically he's claiming that he wants to reference. He steps forward and lays claim to the towns which had been promised to them by Moses. There are 48 towns with pasture lands, including the six towns of these Levitical cities of refuge, now being assigned to the Levites. Now, this distribution of these 48 cities was made based upon the sort of three branches of the tribe of Levi. Now, you have to understand the significance of this because I trust that this is probably lost on most of us today to understand the grace of God even in this gift of these places. The scattering of the tribe of Levi among the other tribes fulfilled Jacob's curse on Levi as well as Simeon back in Genesis 49. Genesis 49, verses 5 and 7, right before Jacob is about to die, he tells Levi of the consequence from what he did earlier in his life. They had wrongly murdered the Shechemites in Genesis 34. And he said, you're not going to get anything. Because you didn't listen to me. God graciously overruled to preserve their tribal identity and to make them a blessing to all of Israel. He did this because the Levites stood with Moses at a time of Israelite crisis. Exodus 32 is when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, only to find the people of Israel worshiping a golden calf. Moses is like, what's happening? Breaks the two tablets, takes the golden calf, grinds up, puts it in the water, makes all the people drink it, taste the bitterness of it. And then the people responsible for leading other people into that false worship are killed as a consequence of the rebellion against God. Later on in Numbers 25, Phineas who was a Levite and Eleazar's son, vindicated God's righteous name and the plans of Moab. Here's what I think is interesting to note, and I, I can't help but just note this myself as a pastor, myself. God has a particular way of keeping the people of God's vision and sight on God himself. To be clear, the Levites were not the best of people historically. It was not because they were seemingly the most impressive. Like God had a talent show. Everybody tried out for it. Levites impressed God the most. And so he says, all right, I'm picking Levite amongst the 12 of you. He's going to be my representative people. People sometimes wonder in my scenario, my story, Eric, or you come from a long line of pastors that you're a pastor. Like, you, you don't know my story. I'm even surprised I'm a pastor, including my family. I don't come from a Christian family. Even to this day, I marvel at the fact that God could use me to do anything with his word. The Levites know their place, and they're also asking for the places promised to them. What's pretty significant here is to recognize the geographical significance the dispersion of the places of the towns that the Levites were given was significant. 
Someone has estimated that no one in Israel lived more than 10 miles from one of the 48 Levitical towns. Geographically, that just might seem like a curiosity. Stay with me. The Levites were not only responsible for what they were doing in the capital town of Jerusalem with the temple worship, but around the place of Israel, they were responsible, very importantly, for being well-versed in the law of Moses, the law of God. Their place in the people of Israel around where they were was to teach, that, was to teach the precepts of God's word. They were to instruct Israel in the law of the Lord that the people of Israel would continue to gain the knowledge of God's word and obey the Lord accordingly. Now let's go back to the geography. That every Israelite was within 10 miles of access to someone who could teach him the word of God and in learning it, know how to honor the Lord was a gift from God to not leave God's people to their own imaginations. Sadly, the Levites did not live up to their potential. As history would show, they did not fulfill their mission. You can't help but to imagine if they had idolatry and its corrupting influence might never have spread over the land of Israel. What are some lessons we can learn from this? I'll give you four. Number one, God has always chosen people to represent him and his word. God has always chosen people to represent him and his word. I think this is what the difficulty when I encounter somebody who is a Christian, but has sworn off any desire or commitment to be meaningfully connected to a local church. And to be clear, the conversation becomes complicated because I can imagine soon into my conversation with such a person, they might think that I mix motives in what I'm trying to appeal to them, as if I'm trying to say, friend, that's not a good decision. You should come to Grace Church and find out how great the pastors are there. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that God particularly gives gifts to the church. Ephesians 4, read it for yourself, where he gives such gifts to the church that the people might not be left to their imaginations and their vain speculations and their endless imaginations of, 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 of uh, thought and be given instead the clarity of God's word. People perish without the word of God and their inability to know it and rightly divide it. So often as a pastor, I hear people interact with things that they think are true, and I'm having all the time go, do I comment on it now or do I wait till later? I might probably wait till later because I think it'll address itself in time. God wants his word not only given to his people, but he gives, as James says, teachers, representatives. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 that God gives shepherds to the sheep. He gives elders to the, chief, to the church that they would rightly divide the word of God, teaching sound doctrine, refuting false doctrine. Too often today, churches are filled with pastors who don't fulfill their duty in that they don't know the Bible well or they're too spineless and they don't confront what needs to be corrected. We see that God has chosen a people to represent him in his word throughout the place of Israel. Second lesson, God's people are to provide for God's servants what they need. 
Look back at the text and see that. Verse 2, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. What's interesting is that what they're asking for is not above and beyond. They're not asking for what they want. They're asking for what they need. They have to have a means to provide for themselves. They, they are allowed to be married. They're allowed to have children. They're allowed to have possessions and they need to be able to care for those possessions. We see the significance of this and how God provided for the Levites through the people's offerings. This continues even in the New Testament. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, how God's people are called upon to provide for God's shepherds. One of the things I'm so thankful, and I confidently say this on behalf of the staff of Grace Church, particularly Chris Judea and myself, how thankful we are that you as a congregation, particularly the members of this church, have decided we want to provide. We, we're not going to give you towns and area for your cattle. Sorry, Chris, no, no area for your cattle. But you'll provide in such a way that we can actually live in the city that we're supposed to minister in. Seemingly a very difficult task of which many churches today, either not by desire or not by decision, make such a decision for their pastors. We're thankful that you do. The third lesson we can see here is that proximity to the truth of God's word affects entire communities. Proximity to the truth of God's words affects entire communities. I won't sort of pull out a map here by way of slideshow, but as you look through these places, these lot that came from the clans, it says in verse four, and begin to place them around, God was literally like doing like a Google map and placing them in all these different places around, as I said, within 10 miles of the people. Because why? Proximity matters. This is why missions, for example, is at the heart of every Christian, especially Christian communities, that we desire that those who have, do not have access to the word of God, particularly the truth of Jesus Christ, would be given access. Broadcast through radio and through TV and through internet can only get you so far to be able to send missionaries to faraway places to people that have never heard the good news of Christ. But it also motivates us as to why we even here in Miami plant churches. Do you know that Faith Church is 11 miles away from us? I promise we did not pick that distance based on this 10-mile reference. We didn't know whether we could find a place for them to meet. But you understand that in Miami, as a lot of you even illustrate this morning, you've driven here from larger distance than just this immediate vicinity. Miami understandably thinks commuting because we're so used to it in our daily rhythms of life here. But there is a responsible for the community in which we live in, in which we are physically placed in. God wants to see us continue to advance that. That's why we want to plant more churches around South Florida, faithful churches that people don't have to get in their car and drive for so long to be in the context of hospitality, to invite their non-Christian friends over, to enjoy Bible study together, to be able to break bread together, to be able to share the needs of their life together. I lament what Chris alluded to in his pastoral prayer in case you missed it. Did you notice the qualifier in his pastoral prayer when he prayed for churches? It wasn't theologically snobbish. It wasn't fraternally selfish. It was biblically minded that not everything that calls itself a church is actually a church. 
just because they have seats and pews and just because they maybe have songs and hymnals and just because they have peoples and preachers does not necessarily at face value make them a church. The church is defined by the preaching of the word of God. It's clear in the gospel and by the administration of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Too often today, churches have given into the temptation to preach whatever you want to hear, not what you need to hear. And so pastors like me come alongside and go, well, they're not going to like Joshua. That's awkward. King seems distant. Psalms seems good. Let's do a series in the Psalms. Proverbs seems wise. Song of Solomon seems rated R. Ezekiel seems weird, drug-induced. Matthew seems friendly. But even then, as we grab the text, let's make it connecting, socially appropriate. We want churches that preach all of the counsel of the word of God, as Paul says in Acts 20. He declared nothing. He rather declared everything. He held nothing back. He says there's no blood on his hands. All the truth that could have been proclaimed, he proclaimed. It wasn't saying there's, he thought everything there was a teacher saying there's nothing he held back. But the proximity of the truth of God's word affects entire communities. It affects children and parents. There are some of you here, and I'm so excited to say this, there are some of you here, rather a lot of you who are here, who are first-generation Christians. Somehow, somewhere in the past, this church, a friend, a co-worker, God used somebody to bring the gospel to you, and you have had your eyes open, you see the truth that's found in Christ, and you've believed. You heeded his invitation, he said, come to me all you heavy laden and burden, and I will give you rest. And you're like, I'm in. I give Jesus my life. And you're beginning to see your family tree head in a completely different direction. The way you think about relationships, government, money, the way you think about the opposite sex, the way you think about your own body, your entire world has been turned upside down as you follow the teachings of Scripture. It is literally life-changing and historically redirecting. And that's because sooner or later, the access you've had to the word of God and being in community where that is shaped and modeled and taught to you. The fourth lesson here is God's people are a royal priesthood waiting to receive their inheritance. We move from the particular Levites by reflection to the people themselves. Does it strike you as encouragingly, perhaps odd and maybe unique in your own ears, that God's people are represented by priests only to find that they fail as the Levites do to find the ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ, only to yet find that they themselves are then declared because of their faith in Christ and 1 Peter 2, a royal priesthood. It's kind of mind-blowing, to be quite honest. You're like, wait, okay, so who's the priests? Who's doing what? Yes, is the answer. There's Levites, but they fail. You know who doesn't fail? Jesus. That's what the book of Hebrews is about. He is the great high priest. When he's get done, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. It's done. It's completed. But then what's so radical is the reality that then... The New Testament teaches not only is Jesus our great high priest, but then we are a royal priesthood, which ironically is very Levitical-like in this way. Do you realize there's nothing here that ultimately is eternal for us except the people we're around? 
You're more like a Levite than you realize. I need a place for my family to sleep, a place for me to care for my possessions. Peter says, you are a sojourner waiting to cross the Jordan River into the promised land of the celestial city. Heaven is your home. Earth is your wilderness. Friends, let me just teach you to both open your hands to what God has given you. Don't cling to it. And secondly, understand that we represent God and his word to the people around us. The question is, what does Miami learn from us? Third and final in the text, it's the smallest section, but it's arguably the loudest lesson, learning about promises. We've learned about people. We've learned about priests. Now, third and final, we learn about promises. Look at Joshua chapter 21, verse 43 through 45. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there, and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Verse 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Have you ever thought, what if I am obedient and it doesn't pay off? I, I have. I'll go first. Have you thought that way? Seemingly you've done the right thing, but didn't get what you thought would be the right response, either from the person that you expected it or from the God who rules over all of it. The temptation is to redirect to some other place for hope, for assurance, for motivation in doing what you do. It demonstrates what I expect either from others or ultimately from God that I have put God in my debt by the fact that I have done the right thing. And if I can't obligate another to return to me in kind like I have done to them, then at least implicitly, God will at least give me credit and some other way, the back door of my life, be able to provide for me some blessing, which I could say, okay, we're good, we're straight. You've paid your debt back to me, God. Thank you for that blessing, noted, credit given. As William Bates said, God will try our faith before he satisfies our sight. God will try our faith before he satisfies our sight. Why do I say all that? Because in these verses here, in verses 43 to 45, this is the theological heart of the book of Joshua. Joshua uses what Pastor Dale Ralph Davis calls sledgehammer theology, meaning he keeps pounding his point home. You've heard me make this point because Joshua has kept making this point. God makes promises and keeps every single one of them. But the question is, are you hoping at the end of that sentence I just said that there is a little footnote? And you look at the bottom of that page of that promise and the footnote says a timeline 
of when that promise will be kept that's in accordance with the timeline you're hoping for. This is where so many of us can identify with the Father who Jesus says, do you believe? And the Father says, I believe, help my unbelief. The people of Israel are being told not one word of the good promises the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. You see the redundancy? Not one word. All came to pass. There's like a, there's an over and exceedingly abundantly, let me make it very clear, God is like with the megaphone saying, listen to me. Do not miss this. Wake up. Hear this clearly. God says, if I promised it, I will keep it. Moses says to him, well, when I go back and tell Pharaoh who sent me, who do I tell him sent me? I, I could use a reference sheet. What, what kind of, what kind of you know, recommendation do I give? He says, you tell him I am that I am sent you. Okay. There is no one greater to whom God can appeal to but to himself. Unlike everything else that's unsure, unsure and shaken, God is not. This is what makes the truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 so rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 22 says the following, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Savannah and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why through him that we utter our amen, our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. When you go to buy a car, and you don't have the money, they want to know, what guarantee do I have you? We're going to get our money from you eventually. A house or any other transaction. God pledges himself to you by giving himself to you. That's what it's talking about here, the Holy Spirit, that, that Christians, Ephesians chapter 1, are given the inheritance of the Holy Spirit as a pledge of their inheritance in Christ. Friends, listen to me. Listen to me carefully. All of the promises that God makes are found, fulfilled, and provided for and secured in Jesus Christ. The question is, do you want those promises or not? I do. You do as well if your faith is in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He being your place of refuge. Otherwise, you have to pay the price for not the person you sinned against, but the God who created you. And that's an eternal punishment in hell. But Jesus says, I see you, and I can replace you by dying as a substitute for you. Friends, if you've never given your life to Christ, find in him all the promises fulfilled, yes and amen in Christ. And if you have, by his grace, then rejoice yet again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.